It's always so good to see your faces. And I was so pleased to hear uh, answering the call to love this morning. I think it's really beautifully resonant with my sermon, so that's always wonderful when that happens, although it's turning into such a gorgeous day outside. I'm kind of regretting not uh, preaching a spring equinox sermon, but here we are. Um, and if I'm being totally honest, I'm a little bit worried that I've bitten off more than I can chew with this sermon this morning. Um, I set out to provide a bit of UU history that I thought might be inspiring as we consider how to engage with the many pressing social justice issues we're facing today. But I quickly realized that this was impossible to do without confronting deep questions about martyrdom, our essential callings in life, and the sources of moral authority. So some pretty big things. Um, I'm also mindful that I will be preaching today about a figure in our tradition who has passed away, but most of whom's family is still living. You know, so for friends and family who knew him, James Reeb's life is so much more than a sermon illustration. So I want to proceed with the utmost care and compassion. Which is all to say there's not really an easy way into this journey we're going to take together today. But I will start my conversation with all of you with where this sermon idea started in my mind, and that is with a song that I had stuck in my head. So as a high school and college student, I was a really big fan of female singer-songwriters. And one of my favorites was folk singer Dar Williams. Is anyone a Dar Williams fan? All right, a few. Um, so Dar Williams has a song called I Had No Right about Catholic priest and poet Daniel Berrigan. And the song focuses on Berrigan's arrest and trial after he, along with eight other activists, stole and burned draft files from the draft board office in Cantonsville, Maryland, in 1968 at the height of the Vietnam War. And this song was my introduction to Berrigan, and I find the lyrics running through my head really regularly. The refrain going, I had no right but for the love of you. Now I've never spoken to Dar Williams or Daniel Berrigan, but my assumption was that in this case, the you refers to Christ, Berrigan being a committed Catholic who is acting based on his deeply held faith. The first time I heard the lyrics as a teenager, I wondered if there was anyone or anything that I loved that much. A radical love that was greater than any earthly authority that would drive me to risk arrest or to risk my own health and well-being. And I still ask myself that question, but I now see the you and the song lyrics much more expansively as a stand-in for our highest, most sacred ideals the divine, the interconnected web of existence, humanity, or the beloved community. I now understand that lyric to mean that deep within us is a kind of compass, a holy center, a divine voice that cannot be destroyed or silenced by any earthly forces, a place of power and purpose, that calls us to the service of that which we know in our bones is sacred. I had no right but for love. Our authority to act prophetically for love and justice comes from a source more eternal than any governing body or political authority. And there are times when we are called to act in direct defiance of those temporal authorities. I've always loved the song and the way it calls me to return to the radical center of my faith. But lately, the lyrics have been stuck in my head and they feel more like an indictment or an accusation. 
What is love calling me to do in this moment? There's so much happening in the world right now that needs our attention and our prophetic action. The lives of LGBTQ kids right here in Tennessee and across the country are at risk. Teachers are being silenced or risk losing their jobs for teaching about the historical realities of systemic racism. A recent climate change report revealed news about the state of our planet that, while not surprising, is nonetheless alarming. And war rages in Eastern Europe with innocent lives lost and the world once again forced to reckon with the implications of nuclear power. There is seemingly no end to the powers in need of defiance. No shortage of places for me to stand up and say I had no right but for the love of you. But where and how and at what cost? Like Dan Berrigan, I know that my faith calls me to speak and act prophetically in these moments. I know this intuitively because of that divine voice, that sacred compass that lies deep within me. I know it because of sermons my colleagues and mentors preach, because of my understanding of how we're supposed to live out our seven principles, and from my own study and theological reflection. But I also know it because before moving to Nashville, every Sunday when I entered the sanctuary of my home church, I walked through the James Reeb lobby. James Reeb was born in Kansas in 1927. He served in the Army during World War II, and after leaving the Army, pursued higher education, first at a Lutheran college, and then at Princeton Theological Seminary. A devout Christian, Reeb was ordained a Presbyterian minister, but began to question his faith after reading a book by Unitarian religious educator, Sophia Lyon Foz. Reeb became a Unitarian in 1957 and was called to serve my home congregation, All Souls Church in Washington, DC. All Souls was, at the time, a majority white congregation and a racially diverse neighborhood. And Reeb was active in developing programs to help the poor and encouraging congregants to work for racial justice. But Reeve had spent much of his career trying to figure out where he could do the most good, and by 1964, he was increasingly convinced this wasn't parish ministry. He tried to work with the Unitarian Universalist Association to find a congregation where he could make an impact, but he wrote to a friend, the Department of Ministry assures me they will get my name on lists of desirable churches. If there is anything I am not interested in, it is joining the list of those looking for desirable churches. Forgive my language, these are Reeb's words, what the hell is a desirable church? So Reeb left congregational ministry and took a position in Boston with the American Friends Service Committee, a Quaker organization devoted to peace and social justice. In this position, Reeb would focus on desegregating Boston's public housing program. Reeb moved his wife Marie and their four children into a predominantly black neighborhood in Boston and enrolled his children in the predominantly black public schools. Reeb's daughter Anne recalled that he was adamant you could not make a difference for African Americans while living comfortably in a white community. Reeb moved to Boston at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, shortly following the March on Washington. On March 7, 1965, civil rights leaders Hosea Williams and John Lewis led protesters across the Edmund Pettus Bridge in Selma, Alabama, where they were met with horrific violence at the hands of Alabama state troopers.
This day became known as Bloody Sunday. Reverend Reeb and his wife watched the news coverage of the attack from their living room in Boston. The next day, March 8th, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. issued a call for clergy of conscience across the US to join him on Tuesday, March 9th for a second attempt at marching from Selma to Montgomery. By evening, James Reeb was on a plane heading for Alabama. That was the last day his wife and four children would see him alive. James Reeb knew the risk when he got on that plane to Alabama. There was a pending court order against the Tuesday march, and Reverend King, Reverend Reeb, and the other demonstrators knew that they would be defying Alabama authorities if they crossed the bridge. No right but for the love of you. They also understood that they were putting their bodies and their lives on the line. When clergy gathered at Brown's Chapel on the morning of March 9th, King told them, I would rather die on the highways of Alabama than make a butchery of my conscience. In the end, the marchers gathered, prayed, and then retreated across the bridge, avoiding a potentially violent confrontation. I imagine Reeb's wife Marie breathed a deep sigh of relief and prayed a prayer of gratitude when she heard the news. Many clergy returned home following, the March, following March 9th, but Reverend Reeb, always asking where he could do the most good, decided to stay in Selma until the court granted permission for the march. This decision would cost him his life. Later that night, after dining together at an integrated restaurant, Reeb and two other white Unitarian ministers, Reverend Clark Olson and Reverend Orloff Miller, were attacked by a group of white men with clubs while leaving the diner. Reeb died of his injuries in a hospital in Birmingham two days later on March 11th. And the page on James Reeb on the website from the Martin Luther King Research and Education Institute at Stanford University ends with two very matter-of-fact sentences that I, say, I think say a lot about progress, accountability, and the complicated legacy of Reeb's death. They read, in April 1965, three white men were indicted for Reeb's murder. They were acquitted that December. The Voting Rights Act was passed on the 6th of August, 1965. There's much more to say about the circumstances surrounding Reeb's death and the trial of the men indicted for it. And I invite you to listen to the wonderful 2019 NPR podcast series, White Lies, which examines all of this in more detail. But what I'm interested in today is not Reeb's death, but rather Reeb's life, and what it has to teach us as Unitarian Universalists in 2022, struggling to respond faithfully, defiantly, prophetically to the same call of love Reverend Reeb, Reverend Reeb answered in 1965. If I'm being honest, I've long been equal parts inspired and unsettled by Reeb's story. I admire his conviction and courage, but there is so much pain and suffering in the story. Martyrdom does not sit well with me. Many of us have rejected a theology that glorifies or requires death and suffering for the world's salvation, so I've never been comfortable with the implication that anyone is called to die for a cause. I think James Reeb's life was so much more than those few violent and senseless moments on a street corner in Selma, Alabama. Ron Engel, one of Reverend Reeb's closest friends and colleagues, told NPR that 
Jim would not have wanted to be remembered as a martyr. As profound and as moving and as important as the story of his death was, Jim was being lost. As a Unitarian Universalist, aspiring minister, and someone shaped by Reverend Reeve's connection to my own spiritual home, I've been searching for new language to help me better understand his life and legacy. Language that we can use today to help us discern when and how to speak prophetically and act for justice. And I found that language with the help of Latin American liberation theologian, Gustavo Gutierrez. Gutierrez, Gutierrez is considered by many to be one of the founders of liberation theology, a theology that centers the needs and concerns of the poor and believes we are called to work towards liberation of oppressed peoples. And Gutierrez is a prolific writer, but one of the essays that has most moved me is his beautiful examination of the Beatitudes from the Gospel of Matthew. The Beatitudes are eight blessings attributed to Jesus, which you've probably come across at some point. They begin, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted, etc. And in his examination of the Beatitudes, what Gutierrez finds that they call us to do is to continuously seek new forms of loving others. Continuously seek new forms of loving others. I love this phrase, and it has really stuck with me since I read it. It is so clear and so simple, and yet so charged with creativity and imagination and action. It is the work of a lifetime. Continuously seek new forms of loving others. And it strikes me that this is what James Reeb did his whole life. And his move from the army to seminary and his theological evolution that caused him to seek a new denomination better aligned with his justice-oriented values and his call to congregational ministry and his eventual decision to leave and his move to Boston, his decision to live in a black community and send his children to integrated schools. And yes, his decision to go to Selma and his decision to stay there following the symbolic demonstration on the 9th. Through all of these life changes, James Reeb was seeking new ways to care for his community, to work for justice, to serve the marginalized and oppressed, and to live out his calling in the most effective and authentic way he could find. He never stopped seeking new forms of loving others. What this phrase this understanding of our essential calling as human beings helped me to understand was that James Reeve did not die for a cause. James Reeve lived for love again and again in as many ways as he could. And what I really love about this phrase is the creativity, imagination, and breadth of experience it allows. It does not automatically presume the most extreme or most physically risky task. Yes, this calling led Reverend Reeve to Selma, but it also led him to a beautiful new domestic chapter. Reflecting many years later on the six months spent in Boston before Reverend Reeve's death, his wife Marie said they were the happiest months the family spent together. She recalled how on Sunday afternoons, the whole family would take a picnic lunch and explore a spot they had never visited before. In a letter to a friend during that time, Reverend Reeve writes that, his children were enjoying school, and his oldest John was eager to help integrate his class. 
We are all amazingly well, Reeb wrote in his letter. I'm faced every day to stretch my mind. There are new problems, new ideas, and new experiences to deal with. I have seized the bull by the horns. I'm doing what seems important and let the damn torpedoes come. Reeb's example shows us that the ways we raise our families, show hospitality to our neighbors, spend our money or spend our Sunday afternoons can all be new forms of loving others. On days when I am studying instead of protesting, for example, I remember that expanding my theological and spiritual vocabulary, understanding history and dreaming a new future with my classmates are all in service of finding new creative ways to love others. And this framing celebrates life abundant, creative, and continuously new life over the forces of death. But it does so in a way that does not deny the reality of the death-dealing forces in the world that will try, try to thwart our attempts to live for love. In continuously seeking new ways of loving others, Reverend Reeb often found himself in opposition to the powers that be. Whether, the, whether that be the frustrated and befuddled staff of the Department of Ministry trying to find him a desirable congregation, the Boston City Council, Alabama State Troopers, or angry white residents of Selma, Alabama. And the hard reality is that sometimes those forces claim a temporary victory. But the beautiful thing about this calling we follow, this calling to continually seek new forms of loving others, is that it is rooted in creativity. It is rooted in the invitation of creation. It promises that we will find ways to love that the forces of death have not yet imagined, not yet found ways to thwart or stop. So we are not called to be martyrs. We are called to be creatives. We live our faith most boldly, most prophetically by saying, we will not stop seeking new ways of loving others. And that might entail defying authorities and teaching about the history of systemic racism in a classroom. It might mean taking a risk to care for a transgender child or a young woman in need of reproductive health care, even though a state legislature says you have no right to do so. It might involve risking arrest or injury at a protest or sit-in, but it doesn't have to. It can be as simple as inviting a refugee family over for dinner reducing your use of single-use plastic to care for the earth, or dancing defiantly in the midst of a world telling us there is no reason for joy. As Unitarian Universalists, as people of conscience, as human beings inhabiting a hurting planet, our primary calling, perhaps our only calling, is to continuously seek new forms of loving others. I cannot tell you if that call will lead you to a bridge in Selma, Alabama, or to a picnic in the park, but I can tell you that this call will lead you somewhere beautiful. My prayer today is that we have the courage and imagination necessary to follow it. May it be so. Amen.